Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right, another week, and the players are back in town with the start of OTAs as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 51. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with former NFL offensive lineman Ross Tucker, and he joins me to talk about the meaning of upside. This is the time of year where that term is thrown around often, and I want to get to the bottom of exactly what it means from a guy who has seen both ends of the upside scale. And like last week's discussion with Stephen White, this week is a double feature because Ross and I jump right into two technique where we talk about how to protect a TE stunt as an interior offensive lineman. Ross gives a great breakdown on how that all gets done. So make sure you stay tuned and listen to that. After that, we wrap up the show by going over my notes on the Eagles 2015 first round pick, Nelson Aguilar and Saturday scouting. What were his strengths and weaknesses coming out of USC a year ago? What does his upside look like? We'll cover all of that with Sir Alex Smith, but we've got a lot to get into. Let's not waste any time. I caught up with Ross Tucker to get to the definition of upside and what exactly it means. Let's get things rolling with Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Really pumped up to welcome in podcast extraordinaire, former NFL offensive lineman, my good buddy, Ross Tucker, the host of the Ross Tucker football podcast and the host of the College Draft podcast with some schmo from, uh, from PhiladelphiaEagles.com. I don't know why anyone listens to that guy, but uh, Ross, I really appreciate the time today. It's, it's good to have a little role reversal, me hosting and you being the guest. It's, uh, it, it's refreshing, to say the least. Yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone right now, but that's okay. As long as I'm talking football with you, I know I'll be fine. Well, there you go. Well, Ross, this is the time of year, right, where fans and media, everyone's to talk about upside and what does it mean for prospects and, you know, what exactly does the word upside entail? And, you know, obviously your time in the league, you've been around players now for as long as you can remember. What is upside? Like, if you could give a definition of upside, how, how would you describe it? I think upside is um, their ability, you know, the the max potential that they are able to reach as a player if everything goes well, based on the skill set that they um, currently possess, especially physical skill set, which you know you and I could get into, but that a lot of times is one of the problems is that people talk upside. They're really talking about physical skill set when the NFL is so much more about mental, um, the, the mental aspect of the game. I think a lot of people realize. But to me, when you're talking about somebody's upside, you're saying, hey, if everything goes well, if he works hard, if he learns the technique with what he possesses physically and mentally, what can he be? Can he be a Hall of Fame caliber player? Can he be a Pro Bowl caliber player? Can he be a, you know, a, a very good starter in the league? And I think that, Fran, it is a fair thing to look at and a fair thing to discuss because I think you want to know, you know, on the high end, what a guy could be. So, you know, for example, for me, my upside probably as a player would have been, you know, an average starter, right? So, okay, if everything goes well with Tucker, 
based on his physical ability. If if he really stays healthy, plays well, get him in the right team, he can be an average starter, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you'd like to, when you're drafting people, especially high, and really when you're drafting them at all, you'd like to draft people with an upside that would enable them to have a chance to be better than just an average starter. The problem is, you know, I've seen a lot of guys with a lot of upside that stinks, and they never get close to getting that upside for a, a myriad of different reasons. Well, I, that's why I'm really glad that you brought it up was the mental and like the competitive toughness trait and, you know, just how much more goes into upside other than just the physical skill set. And, and all the physical tools certainly come into play when you're talking about physical upside. But, you know, what good is is 4-3 speed or, you know, a natural power and the ability to move people, you know, whether we play offense or defense, if competitively or mentally or instinctively it's not there because it's almost like, uh, I don't want to say wasted talent, but, you know, if you don't have the ability to reach that physical upside, does it really exist? You know, and you've been around so many young players and, you know, one that comes to mind right off the bat, you were a teammate of Jason Peters coming out. He was a high school, or he was a college tight end from Arkansas and showed up and he was playing special teams his first year at Buffalo, running down, covering kicks as a future all-pro offensive tackle. You know, obviously he was an upside player. How much of it is the mental side? And when you played, did you often see guys that, you know what, you see a guy early and you say, yeah, physical upside's there. I just have no confidence he's going to be able to reach it. Well, and Peters is a great example, and it would be the one that I would bring up. And, yes, he was a 320-pound tight end that, you know, blocked the punt, returned for a touchdown against the Bengals in December. I'll never forget that. We did go, you know, the first half of that season, Fran, he was on the practice squad. Anybody could have gotten him. And then the second half of the season, you know, they bumped him up to the active roster and started to use him as a weapon. You know, they actually had a package for him on offense. Uh, the issue, though, with him, even through his second training camp, was that, you know, the, the mental aspect of playing the position did not come real naturally for him, right? So there were enough mental errors that I remember thinking, I don't know how you could ever play this guy in the game, right? I mean, there's too many times where he's not blocking the guy he's supposed to block, and that other guy comes free and is going to kill the quarterback, right? You just can't have that in the NFL. And I know Tom Donahoe at one point in that second training camp said, you know, to a teammate of mine, you know, it might take another year, but he'll get it. He'll figure it out. And he did. I mean, they put him in the lineup at right tackle, midway through that year, the 05 season, and he really never looked back. And he, I mean, he's the most gifted offensive lineman I ever played with by a lot. Um, I thought he'd go on to have a nice career. I didn't know that he'd go on to, to have this kind of a career. But he was not afraid to work. And he was so talented, so good, even when he was raw, that you knew if he put the time in, and improved on his technique, which is a huge part of it. You know, I don't think people realize pro football is not easy. I mean, pro football is a grind, and you really have to treat it as your craft and work and strive to get better every single day, or you're going to get passed up. You know, just like everybody else listening out there, they've got some job they do. Hey, look, if you're a carpenter or a plumber, you get it. I mean, the guys that really work at their craft and maybe go to shows and and have a mentor that helps teach them certain things, they're going to just keep getting better and better, whereas the guys that, that just, oh, I, I, you know, I got my certification, I'm good, 
they might not get to that same level. And Jason was always willing to work, which was the real feather in his cap. You know, the negative, though, Fran, is for every guy like Jason Peters, there are guys with physical ability that never get there. They never figured out. And so I think we don't talk enough about downside. You know, for these guys that have huge upside, a lot of times they got a pretty low floor as well, meaning they're not even going to be functional players that you can even put in the game because they either don't understand the scheme or the technique, and they're not going to be able to be legitimate contributors to the team for you. You know, and that's the one thing that people always talk about upside. I don't hear people talking nearly enough about downside, whereas, you know, there's guys in this draft, or even a guy like me, theoretically, you could say, all right, the downside, though, is he'd probably still end up being a, uh, a, a contributor, a backup offensive lineman that, you know, we could put in the game, and because he's mentally tough and physically tough, he probably wouldn't lose the game for us. So you have to think about it as an organization, you know, when it's a high upside guy, there's usually more of a downside as well, whereas there are other guys that might be a little bit of a safer bet. Maybe the upside's not there, but you at least know you're going to be bringing in someone that there's a pretty good bet that he'll be a pretty good contributor for you. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because I remember last year a lot of the discussion between talking about two of the top receivers in the draft, you know, Amari Cooper and Kevin White. And sure, Amari Cooper certainly had the highest quote-unquote floor of the two players. A lot of people thought, okay, Kevin White may have a higher upside, but if you've got a guy that's got a high floor in Cooper and a high upside, it's almost a a safe bet, and that's really what dictates who is a quote-unquote safe player, and really there is no such thing when it comes to the NFL draft. But, you know, you look at all around the league, and you and I on the College Draft Podcast have been talking about all these prospects week in and week out ever since last summer. And there's a litany of guys. You can go down the list of players that have great physical gifts. And you can go even in the last few drafts. You know, a player like Justin Gilbert, right? Justin Gilbert from Cleveland. He was a top 10 pick out of Oklahoma State as a corner. He had the size. He tested well. Athleticism off the charts. But has just not been able to put it together. And you saw a little bit of that at Oklahoma State. That's why a lot of people, you know, he gave some people pause. When you see a player like that, how willing would you be? You know, you're gonna, I'm going to put your, your GM hat on here. If you see a guy who's that gifted, but you know, you, there's questions about whether or not he can ever reach that upside, how, how do you grade that? How do you evaluate that moving forward? Are you willing to push all your chips in? No, I'm not, but I'm not very aggressive. I don't go to Atlantic City. I don't go to Vegas. I'm not a gambler. I don't gamble. I, I invest. I save. And for me, especially high in the draft, Fran, I'm taking guys that have high floors also. I'm taking an Amari Cooper type of player, because I, I can't afford to get a goose egg out of Johnny Manziel and Justin Gilbert. You, know, you just can't afford to draft guys like that and get essentially nothing out of them at this point. I'm all for high upside guys in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round. Look, I get it. You know, At that point, the risk, or the reward, I should say, is worth the risk. But in the first round, I'm looking for clean guys. I'm looking for guys that I have a pretty good sense that, yeah, he's got so-and-so upside, whatever that upside might be. But I know I'm going to get a guy that's going to be a starter for me and a very good player. That's what I would be looking for. I think sometimes, though, these coaches are so confident in their own ability and so enamored 
by what they can't coach, what they can't teach, that they really get infatuated with physical ability of certain players. There's no question. I've seen it. I've seen the opportunities in training camps that guys have gotten rep after rep after rep because the coaches are just so eager to see whether or not this guy can figure it out, this guy can get it. But at a certain point, you know, what does upside really do for you? I hear people, you know, what we've been talking about, the whole Colin Kaepernick situation with the Broncos and the 49ers and some of the other options maybe for the Broncos, like a, a Brian Hoyer or Ryan Fitzpatrick. People are talking about Colin Kaepernick's upside and potential. You know, at what point do you just become, hey, this is what you are? You know, I mean, yeah, Fitzpatrick doesn't have the physical upside, but at this point he's a pretty darn good player. I think he proved that last year in New York. Colin Kaepernick's gotten worse every year, and he's faster than Fitzpatrick and he can throw the ball farther than Fitzpatrick. But, you know, I mean, so can Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, at what point does that not matter anymore, what a guy's upside is? At what point do you just become, hey, this is what he does as a player. This is how he performs on the field in games, which is what really matters, more so than physical ability, which a lot of times is tantalizing but disappointing. Well, it's interesting you bring the Kaepernick situation up. If he does end up in Denver, he'll have a chance to throw it over them, their mountains. But, uh, you know, I think <laughs> I think that the other big thing, too, that is really interesting, and I remember a couple years back I was talking with Phil Savage, a former GM with the Browns, and he was with the Ravens for a long time. And he told me that when they were in Baltimore and they had players like Ray Lewis and they had guys like Ed Reed, they were willing to take chances on guys, not because of their trust in coaches, but because of the trust that they had in some of their players to be able to apply peer pressure to guys that maybe didn't have all their, uh, their I's dotted and their T's crossed on the field and away from the field, but those guys would be able to keep them in line. You had guys like Ray Lewis. Now, in your experience in a locker room, have you seen more situations where guys like that really try and cater and get, get in line with some of the players in their own position room or – is a guy, is he, is, he is what he is. Is that the case more so than not when they come out of college and they get to the league, or do you see them more fit into what the, the identity is of that position room? Well, it's, it's a fair question. I think two things. Number one, I think what the Ravens had or have that culture is pretty rare. You know, I think the Steelers have it to some extent. You know, I think the Patriots have it on some level. But I think it's pretty rare that – an organization's leaders or reputation kind of precede itself. And as a result, guys kind of fall in line. But I also ask Phil Savage or anybody, you know, what players are we talking about? Uh, you know, there was some concerns about Terrell Suggs. He's also a pretty darn good player. You know, I mean, Haloding Nada. I mean, they've also drafted some really good players. So in terms of getting in line, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know how much of that was because of the leaders they had in that team or just because they drafted darn good football players because we could also, you know, list some examples of guys that the, the Ravens brought in because, oh, wait till we get him in our locker room, and it didn't really work out, and it hasn't worked out. And that happens sometimes as well. I, I would not put a lot of faith in that. You know, is, is there some truth to it? Yes. But if you think just because you draft a guy that Connor Barr was going to take him under his wing or – you know, a guy like D'Amico Ryan when he was with the Eagles or whoever, or even Malcolm Jenkins, I, I, think, I think you're probably reaching. I think that that's a nice thing to hope for, 
But those guys, they've got their own careers to worry about. They've got their own lives, their own performance to worry about. In my experience, there aren't very many veteran players that take a whole lot of time to worry about, you know, the progress and, and the continued performance of a young guy. I mean, who has time for that? Well, that's, and that's a valid question. So, so here's my last question for you in this topic. And I feel like we could talk about this for another half hour. But, you know, when you look at upside, are there positions around the league? And obviously you've got the most experience with the offensive line. But are, are there some positions in football that you feel more comfortable taking a chance on upside as opposed to others? Or what, do you think it's pretty even across the board? Well, I think it's pretty even. I think quarterback is one where I, 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 I'd probably – the downside would concern me more at, at quarterback. I do think at positions like wide receiver and running back, there's a little bit more of a willingness to take a chance there because we've seen guys that if they just have such unbelievable physical ability can, can really be productive even if – you know, the mental side of it is not strong for them. Offensive line is another one I'd probably stay away from. I think defensive line is a good one where to take a chance with a guy's upside. You know, Fran, I hate to say it, but the more mentally challenging a position is, the less willing I would be to take a chance on a guy with upside. Because usually if a guy has physical ability, but we're talking about his upside, that means he hasn't done it yet. And that means there's something going on there mentally, whether it's just the game doesn't come naturally for him or he has trouble picking up scheme or a work ethic or whatever. I think sometimes, you know, D linemen, running backs, wide receivers, to name a couple positions, I think guys can just make plays at those positions, whereas offensive line, um, safety in particular, but really the whole secondary quarterback, I think it's really, really tough to excel at those positions if you don't have a great grasp for the game and you don't have tremendous football intelligence. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that up because I feel like I, I, I've talked to somebody, somebody that uh, an evaluator over the past couple of years, they told me that the further away you get from the ball, the less important the, the, the instincts and the mental processing and everything that goes along with being – uh, a smart player. Obviously, we're talking about a position-specific basis right now. Uh, the more important that becomes, the closer you get to the football. But you know, you talk about centers and guards, and then you get to tackle and tight end, and then outside the wide receiver. But it's interesting because, really, I, and I think I would agree, man. Because that's why when, I, when I'm watching players and I'm trying to project them to the league, you want to look for those mental traits. Those guys, when you look at it and you say, you see a play, and you say, you know what? I see that in the league on a weekly basis in the fall. That's easily translatable. Where if if it's just flashes of athleticism or flashes of power, you're you're left projecting. And the more projection, and when this is a a, a obviously a business where look there there's not a lot. Of, maybe if you're fifty fifty, that's you're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, the less projection you need to make, the better. And anytime you're talking about upside, you're inherently are talking about projection. Yep, I I, I think uh, I think you're right. It's like it's like potential. Potential is a dirty word. Potential just means to me you haven't done it yet. Sure. Well, Ross, I appreciate the time here once again, but the one thing I have to say is we still have one more segment with you. Like I do every single week, I love talking with current and former players about some kind of technique, and let's get to that right now in two technique. 
Time to get inside the mind of a player. It's time for Two Technique. All right, Ross, this week on Two Technique, the big thing that I want to hit on with you is as a former offensive lineman, and particularly a former interior offensive lineman, defending a TE stunt where the, the defensive tackle slants inside and then a, a defensive end loops back around to, towards the interior of the offensive line. And how hard is that to defend or to really to protect as an interior offensive lineman? What are the, the coaching points there for an offensive guard? Well, it's hard because a lot of times, you know, you're most worried as an offensive guard about getting beat inside and or getting run over. So you're going to set really the inside number. You know, if that guy wants to go wide, a lot of times you let him go wide because, you know, he's really running away from the quarterback at that point. The problem is, you know, if he gets a good jump off the snap and your offensive tackle, your buddy next to him, saying I'm playing right guard right now, and the offensive tackle doesn't see it or feel it, he's going to be able to pick the hip of that offensive tackle. So the best thing you can do is have a pretty good idea that it's coming ahead of time. A lot of times you can notice that by alignment. You know, the defensive tackle might line up a little bit wider than he normally does because you want to get that upfield charge before you really get a chance to try to redirect him. And the defensive end might be a tiny bit off the ball to give themselves a better angle when they come looping around. So that basically is the tell. Those are the things that you're looking for. The number one thing that, the, that you need to do as an offensive lineman is you need the offensive tackle to set straight back and keep his inside hand out there, you know, to try to grab that defensive tackle and throw him across his body, bring him to him if he's going to try to attack his hip. If that tackle goes out and jumps the D end or gets wide, you really have very little shot. Then it's the job of the offensive guard to really blunt the charge of that D tackle as much as possible and try to punch and shove him laterally as much as you can to try to protect your offensive tackle as much as you can. I was not very good at that. That was hard, and I was not a good puncher. So what you need to do is try to be as aggressive as possible horizontally so you can get on that D-tackle as soon as you can and try to use his momentum to push him laterally, push him horizontally, and then push yourself back inside so that you're prepared when the DN comes looping around. Because there's two parts of it. There's the flattening and the widening of the defensive tackle, and then you have to get yourself back in position as the looping defensive end comes around, be square, and be athletic, because now there's going to be some space between you and that guy. The key, though, is to not let that tackle penetrate. Because a lot of times, as long as you blunt him and don't let him pick the tackle, you're going to have time for the defensive end. And unless that defensive end comes clean or beats you clean at that point, you know, now we're talking about a decent amount of time has been taken. So unless they run you over or they swim you or beat you clean, even if he gets a little bit of an edge on you, the ball should be out at that point. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the you know, not letting that penetration from the defensive tackle because a lot of times you, know, you watch and now you have the penetrator with the tackle, you have the looper and the defensive end. A lot of the times – 
that penetrator is the one that it gets home, even though that it's really meant to try and get that looper home. Uh, it's really interesting. But let me ask you one question, one follow, because you, you obviously you covered a ton there. It was great. When How much is it in terms of the communication between the tackle and the guard? Obviously, you've practiced this. You've gone through so many reps throughout the course of the week of practice. How much of that communication is verbal, mental, or is it physical, whereas the physical, almost like a bump from the offensive tackle, like, hey, there's, some, there's, some, there's action coming your way, or is it just feel at this point? A lot of it, well, it depends on how long you've been with the guy next to you. You know, if, if you haven't been with him long, you probably try to communicate it verbally as much as possible. If, if you have, you might kind of have a, a phrase or something you say before the, before the play. A lot of it's like, hey, check twist here, check stunt, T-E, T-E, because they're going to run it anyway, you know, if it's been called for them. So I think the communication is usually before the snap, and then once the play actually unfolds, then that is more during the snap. It's just a feel for it, and it's, it's really body. It's really you feel the other guy physically bump you off. You know, as soon as that tackle sees that the end put his foot in the ground to start the loop, he should come in and physically knock you as the guard back into the A-gap so you're prepared for that defensive end coming around. That's more physical communication at that point than it is verbal. Ross Tucker, again, you could follow him on Twitter at Ross Tucker NFL, the host of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, and of course, the College Draft Football Podcast with myself. Uh, you can find that on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever podcasts can be found. Ross, Really, really great stuff. Appreciate the time once again here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. My pleasure, Fran. Anytime. Great stuff from Ross. And again, you can follow him on Twitter just like I do, at Ross Tucker NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that I produce on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I really appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on social media. We've got a ton more to get to, but it's that time. Let's welcome in my favorite guy in the room. It's not BT this week. I mentioned him earlier. It's Alex Smith. Alex, what's up, man? Not much, Fran. Very happy to be back. Second Always love jumping on this podcast with it's you. Always a good time. Third, third time this offseason, second week in a row. Uh, you're becoming almost a regular now. But a uh, really interesting discussion with Ross and talking about upside. And it's a topic that, you know me, I'm all about the draft and this whole process. And, mm-hmm. you know, upside is such a term that's thrown around all the time. So I was really happy to catch up with Ross and, you know, talk about what is the meaning of it? And we, I feel like we could have gone for another hour because it's such a deep topic and covers so many different points. So really interesting stuff. And to me, it's, just, it's, it's such a hard thing to really define because it, it, where can you put that ceiling on a guy? You know what I mean? Because you look at these kids, you know, some of them, you know, they're 19, 20, 21 years old, however old they are. And it's kind of it's, it's difficult to project exactly how far they could go, where that ceiling is. So uh, I I mean, certainly, you know, we've been looking at these guys in the draft this year. I think there are certainly some guys uh, with, you know, that upside, that potential to be really something special. And, you know, we've talked a lot about guys like Christian Hackenberg. I know you're a fan of his. I'm kind of hopping on that bandwagon as well. And I think he really, you know, he fits that mold of guys who you see there's something there. But he just didn't quite put it all together in his last couple seasons at Penn State. But I think he's an interesting guy who, you know, his ceiling could be pretty high in the NFL. Well, yeah, and that's why, you know, honestly, like it's like I said earlier, I feel like we could have talked even longer with Ross. But when it comes down to it, I think there are a couple different ways you can look at upside too. And I'm glad you brought up Hackenberg because, you know, to me, one way you can look at upside, and it's one factor that I think plays into the equation of the draft, 
is almost the valuation of prospects, not the evaluation, but the valuation. So, hmm. you know, if you take Christian Hackenberg, and obviously, look, I, I'm a big fan of, a, of his. You know I'm a big fan. But he's got issues, obviously. He's got, to work, he's got to work through a lot of different things. I'm not saying you should take Christian Hackenberg in round one, even though I think that he can reach a certain level of quality of play. I don't think that he's a first-round pick. But if you're taking him in the, if you're taking him in the mid-rounds, if you're taking him in the third round, and the fourth round, fifth round, I feel really good about you getting a return on that investment. So I look at that and say, okay, you know, to me that's a high upside selection because you have a potential starting quarterback in the third or fourth round. That's where I, I almost, you almost can look at upside that way too. And there's all, there's all kinds of examples of that looking throughout the draft at different positions. But you know, you almost take the value of prospects and how you're going to acquire them on draft day. I think that can apply to it a little bit as well. I guess scouts and decision makers in the NFL really have to weigh it out. And they really have to find the balance between, okay, we think this guy, you know, he could be a solid pro for years. Then on the other side, there's a player who's a much bigger risk, but down the line could be a potential star. And I think there are some other names in the draft, uh, just to name a few guys like Laquan Treadwell. I think people think, you know, some of these um, guys at the skill positions who are projected in the early round, Laquan Treadwell, uh, Zeke Elliott, some other running backs, Paul Perkins out of UCLA, Alex Collins. These are young guys, but these are guys who, you know, down the road could really be something special. And I think, you know, as each team is going to have to make that evaluation of how high do we think they can go. Yeah, and some people use age as a way, and I, I actually wish I asked Ross about that, is some people equate age to upside as, you know, Hey, look, at some of these guys, and you mentioned some of these guys, the Treadwells and the Zeke Elliotts, those guys all will be 21-year-old rookies. When, they, when training camp opens this summer, they will be 21 years old. So they were doing all their damage against college players when they were 19, 20 years old, whereas some players are a little bit older. You know, you look at a guy like Josh Doxson, who's going to be 23. Leonard Floyd's going to be 23. So they were doing, they, you know, they were gaining all this production when they were 22, 21 years old against 18 and 19-year-olds. Some people look at that and say, Ah, uh, well, you know, and I, our our good friend Bo Wolf is one of those people who will say, "I'll take a guy who's a little bit younger. There's a little bit more growth potential there. There are some websites out there. The guys over at RotoViz do a really good job of looking at the impact of age and when prospects have a have reached their peak in terms of success and athletic performance. I think that's a really interesting point as well. Is just talking about how age factors in, and it's not just age too, but Think about the age out of position, you know, experience out of position. So you talk about a player like C.J. Proceis, mm-hmm. you know, who's only played one year at the running back spot. He's an outstanding athlete. He's got great size, you know, six foot and a half, 220 pounds. He's a great athlete. He's only played one year at running back. He was a receiver for, for three years, arrived as a safety at, at Notre Dame. So a guy that's only played one year, maybe there's upside there. He didn't always show great vision, but is that because he doesn't have those natural instincts or is it just because – yeah, look, the guy's only had a couple months of reps. He just moved. He was still a receiver right. at this point last year. A guy like Braxton Miller is another Exactly example. right. Somebody That's a great who, point. He's got tremendous upside, I think, at the wide receiver position, but he's played it for, what, uh, one year? So, right. you know, it, he's another one of those guys. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about that factor of upside. And then, you know, to me too, and this is, I think, the point that I was hitting on with Ross more so than not, is the players in this class that, you know, the physical ability is there. You see the physical traits but from a technique standpoint, still a little bit of ways to go. But if they can correct that, now you see a player make a big jump. And one, the one player that comes to mind for that is the, the Boise State edge rusher. That's Kamalai Correa, you know, six, just under 6'3", 243 pounds. Really athletic when you watch him. His test scores were very, very bad. I know he had a poor spark number. But his test scores weren't great when you watch him. Burst off the line of scrimmage. High motor kid. Looks the, the, has the ability to play in space. 
just doesn't use his hands all that well. And if he can learn how to use his hands, now you're talking about an explosive edge rusher that can play as a three-down player coming around the corner for, for an NFL defense. So, you know, it's just interesting looking at the whole discussion of, of upside, how that applies to this class, and you try and think back to examples. I brought up Justin Gilbert earlier with, with Ross and how – all of that you can almost look to the past and see, okay, well, this worked with this guy. This did not work with Justin Gilbert. This did not work with, you know, he mentioned Johnny Manziel. You know, you think of players that had high upside that worked, players that had high upside and didn't work. What were the reasons for it? Right. And so I start thinking about, you know, that it's almost like that it factor, right? Like that like competitive, relentless nature, like a J.J. Watt or a Richard Sherman and a Tom Brady where – those guys are just relentless. You know, you remember T.O. Say what you want about T.O. T.O. was one of the best uh, receivers in the league because that guy was relentless in terms sure. of how he worked and how he prepared. Guys like that are guys that are ultimately going to reach that potential, are going to reach that upside. So it's, it's very, very interesting this time of year as we uh, try to you know, take a look at you know, who is going to reach their ultimate potential. But really great stuff. I really yeah. enjoyed yeah, that I conversation. Think, I always think it's interesting to see, you know, how long these guys get once they do make it to the NFL. You mentioned a guy like Justin Gilbert, uh, a, a player like Marcus Smith on the Eagles who sure. who came into the NFL with a lot of upside. Was he drafted too early? That's a whole other debate. But a guy who could have that potential to be a really good pass rusher, and we just haven't seen it yet. So uh, there's always that question of, okay, how long do you let this guy go? How long do you keep working with him to see if he can ever reach that peak? And I think that's always one, one of the most interesting things to watch as well. Yeah, no question about it. Well, you brought up 2014 first-round pick, Marcus Smith. Let's now talk about 2015 first-round pick, Nelson Aguilar, in this week's edition of Saturday Scouting. That was great stuff there from Steven. He did a great job breaking down the spin move. So I'm going to quickly break down how to subscribe to a podcast. And if you're listening to this on the Eagles app or on the website and you like what you hear, it's really easy. All you have to go, pull out your smartphone, go to your podcast app, hit search, search in for Eagle Eye in the Sky, hit subscribe, and this show downloads to your phone each and every week. You can do it on your iPad. You can do it in your car. You can do it all over the place now and listen to these podcasts whenever you want. We've got the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. We've got the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by AAA. The College Draft podcast is myself and Ross Tucker. And the Eagles Live podcast as well here on PhiladelphiaEagles.com with Dave Spadaro. We have a ton of great podcasts out there. So, uh, you know, it's the best way now to ingest content we're going to wrap this show up, though, this podcast, like we do each and every week. Let's talk some college football and Saturday scouting. It's time for Saturday scouting. All right, Alex, so I wanted to take a look at Nelson Aguilar. And obviously, up and down rookie season. Had, sure. some, had his moments for sure. We remember the big play uh, against the Buffalo Bills. He had gr- some great plays against the Washington Redskins as well throughout the season. But, you know, coming out of USC – you know, he's an interesting case because, you know, Ross talked about the high floor and how teams are more likely or, you know, some coaches feel really good about taking players with high floors because they trust their character and their work ethic. And that was seems to be the case with Nelson Aguilar where, you know, based purely on physical skills, a lot of people didn't necessarily see, oh, he's a top 15, top 20 type pick. Mm-hmm. But when teams got to meet with him and see him at the combine, all the reports were this time last year that every t- team, every coach that talked with Nelson Aguilar fell in love with him and his character and his ability to improve as a football player. And I so. think as we found out, 
that was certainly the case. He came here the day after he was drafted to be introduced to the media. He was in the cafeteria. There was a group of season ticket members out here. He spoke in front of them. He met with all them. And you could see it right there, what all those coaches and all those evaluators had seen, where uh, off the field this guy was just through the roof. You could see why he impressed teams. Exactly right. So figured, all right, let's, uh, we're talking about upside. Let's talk about Nelson Aguilar and him coming out of USC. And so, you know, what I wrote about him, six zero zero one, so just over six feet tall, 198 pounds, had a limited workout. He didn't go through a whole workout just because of some injuries leading up to the draft process. But watching him at USC, he lined up at X in the slot and at times in the backfield, a fluid, deceptive athlete with good long speed and the ability to be a vertical threat. He has an understanding of how to stack defenders and attack the leverage of a corner. If you guys listen to or if you watch the Meet the Prospect series on PhiladelphiaEagles.com, I just talked about Braxton Miller's ability to attack leverage and step on the toes of a, of a defender. I saw that a lot with Nelson Aguilar. I thought he had a really good knack for how to attack DBs, how to work the mid-route. He did a really good job of doing that throughout his career at USC. Uh, back to the notes, does a good job of getting the cornerback's hips turned downfield. There you go. And has a knack for working a DB mid-route. Shows good separation quickness at the top of his stem and is able to consistently put distance between himself and the defender. He will work over the middle of the field. He, use, he was used often on screens, has good vision and runs through tackles, and has good shake with the ball in his hands. Every catch is able to go the distance with this kid. Also has a quality punt returner during his time at USC, averaging 19.1 yards per return with two touchdowns as a sophomore in 2013. So I was high on his physical ability. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, listening to your notes here, Fran, that he was used in so many different ways in USC. You mentioned how he could line up in the backfield from times. He could go over the middle. He could work from any spot uh, lined up as a receiver. And I don't think we really saw that with him in his first year as the Eagles. He kind of had one singular role where he played on the outside, kind of a vertical threat on the offense. Not, you know, and, and we've talked at length about on all of our podcasts about uh, maybe the limitations of what the Chip Kelly offense was as far as the passing game went. So with Doug Peterson coming in, with Frank Wright coming in, I'm really excited to see exactly how many different ways they could use him if they could get back to what he was doing at USC and really using his pure athleticism uh, as something that can be a weapon. Yeah, I know, no question about it. Now, those were the positives of Aguilar. Obviously, look, he wasn't the number one pick, so he had some negatives to his game too. Uh, you know, One of the things that really bothered me was consistently false-stepped on his release versus off-coverage, and at times I thought he had trouble fighting through press at the college level. Doesn't always play fast without the ball. And and while he ran well at his pro day, I wasn't sure if he was a truly explosive receiver downfield. He wasn't a 4-3 guy. He wasn't like a Deshaun Jackson-type player in terms of his speed in the open field. I thought he may be more quick than fast. While he has the physical traits of a good route runner, he does need some polish. And I thought that he's taken some steps in that direction this past year as a rookie. Runs a little bit high. Needed to clean up his feet a little bit. And so that's the thing is I thought he had a good knack of how to attack defensive backs. But just from a technique standpoint, just a little bit more to polish. And I actually, I think I'd rather have a guy that has that, that shows the knack and shows the physical skills, but doesn't have the technique all cleaned up yet. Because sure. then you can always try to improve the technique and you technique can drill can that. Be taught, right? Exactly right. So um, at times I thought he fought the ball a little bit, had a lot of drops and double catches on tape. Need to be more of a consistent hands catcher. Was not a contested catch guy. Definitely a player that wins in the quote unquote small game as a receiver. You know, overall, I wrote that he was a loose hip movement wide receiver with home run abilities. I liked his positional versatility. Every catch with him turns into a punt return. Hands are an issue, and he needs to improve as a route runner, but I think he can turn into an effective pro receiver on the outside or in the slot. So 
you know, I, I think that he could turn into a quality receiver. I'm really excited, like you said, about Frank, how Frank Reich and Doug Peterson and Greg Lewis, how are they going to use Nelson Aguilar? How is he going to fit into this offensive game plan and really trying to reach his full potential? Well, Fran, as always, your notes are basically spot on because uh, we saw a lot of this. We saw the good and we saw the bad in his rookie season here with the Eagles. Uh, obviously, with his hands, that being uh, one of the questions that you had with him coming out of USC. And we saw that a little bit, had some problems bit, with sure. drops here or there. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, like you said, like we both said, I, I'm really excited to see what he can do in, in a different offense, maybe a little bit of a bigger role for him. Another year in the league, he has yep. that rookie season under his belt. It's out of the way. And if we know one thing about him, we know he's going to work hard. Absolutely. This guy is a furious hard worker. It's, it's, it's all he wants to do is talk, breathe, and, and think about football. So uh, we, I'm sure he's been working hard throughout the offseason. And I really think that there's, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities of what he can be in 2016. Yeah, and you think back to that interview that Greg Lewis did upon his arrival with Dave Spadaro in this very studio, recording this in the Xfinity studio today, uh, and he talked about, oh yeah, drops, that's going to that's gonna get corrected. We're going we're gonna to fix that. We'll drill that out. So uh, really excited about the receiver position moving forward, but that'll do it. I th- thanks again to Ross Tucker, to Alex Smith, and all of you out there listening, whether you're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, and of course, can't forget, on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app. Thank you, and if you get the time, again, go on, rate the show, leave us a comment, and let us know what you think. Shoot me a question. I want to know what everybody thinks about the show. We want to try and make it better each and every week. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast for my producer, BT. I'm Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week.